Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for joining us on The Great Exchange, a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. My name is Maddie, and on the other side of the computer screen, Nick Semenoch. How you doing, brother? I am doing very well this fine day, Matt, and yourself? Good, man. Good. Excited to be here with you again and excited to walk through the scriptures with our faithful listeners. Um, Before we get into it, though, just want to highlight for people, go over The Great Exchange, check out our website. You can see all our episodes as we put them out over there. We also have a wonderful new podcast on our website you know, uh, our feed, uh, and that's our buddy Bryce Kloss, and he's putting out the 21st Century Christian, um, and he's been doing some really cool stuff there. So we hope you've been enjoying those ones. You've been listening to those. It's just a little bit more content in your feed. And I know, Nick, you were talking about doing some other podcasts as well to maybe start people off uh, in the week by walking them through just really short Um, A wonderful resource that we've highlighted many a time on the program, but it is truly one that is worth getting into uh, and really meditating on. And that is an old book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. Can you tell people what you're kind of, what the show is that you're envisioning doing? So what I've had an idea of doing since I first got my hands on the Valley of Vision was to take those great Puritan prayers, which are so steeped in scripture and great devotion towards God, and put them into a more modern language, something that people might be able to better understand in a quick manner rather than trying to filter it through, you know, that Puritan language and then try and get it into your head and understand exactly what they're trying to say. So I've always had this idea that I want to take the Valley of Vision, I want to break it down, put it into modern language, but then I thought we also have this great platform being the internet, podcasting, and the great exchange. And as we talk to, as you made mention, Bryce at the 21st Century Christian, adding that to our podcast lineup I thought it would be a great avenue and a great opportunity to really get a fire under my feet here to get me going on this project, <laughs> to, to have it as something that we can start off each week doing. So once a week at the beginning of the week, whether that be, it would probably be on Mondays, uh, where it would come out and it would be a recording of that Valley of Vision in that updated modern language as well not going to hip lingo, you know, like... Not using emojis. <laughs> not using emojis, you know, not using sup and everything else like that that we see yeah. nowadays. Uh, just, you know, modern English in a way that people can understand and really get the thrust of what these prayers are really getting to without removing it far from that language either. We don't want to lose something by trying to update it to the point where it's unrecognizable. We just want to take what's there move it into a more modern understanding just in like getting rid of these and thous and things like that um, so that when we read them, it's a little bit more accessible, a little bit more understandable for not just our listeners, but hopefully one day the readers of that as well. Yes, absolutely. Because who knows, Lord willing, maybe that's a a great book to publish for for people to peruse through and and to utilize because they certainly are wonderful prayers. But yeah, 
times they're a little bit difficult to get through uh, just because they have a lot of of that kind of old English. Very beautiful, very flowery, very poetic, but uh, sometimes a little difficult um, to get through because it's a mm-hmm. little bit archaic. Um, but I, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's a great idea. So I want people to stay tuned for that. I want people to get excited for that because that would just be a nice little way to kind of have a little put a little pep in your step. I know, you know, sometimes getting into the week after you've had a wonderful, you know, uh, Lord's day when, when you're there with all the people of God worshiping, hopefully (laughs) like people should be doing, um, you know, it's, it's good to get that recharge and then also, you know, be looking forward looking ahead in the week. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure there's so much stuff that people will be able to ponder and people will be able to meditate upon. And, you know, I think it'll unlock some of these wonderful uh, works of old. So I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to help uh, in, in any way that I can to make sure that that happens. And hopefully our listeners are excited. We also have some merchandise coming down um, the pike. We've got to get our store up and running, but that's all in the works as well. So go over to The Great Exchange. Check that out. Check out some of the new content we have. And also, I want to just make mention, we're over at Take Hold Studios, takeholdstudios.com. Our friends over there, Erica and Grant Van Brimmer, they do a wonderful podcast called The Reformed Reset. Not The Great Reset, but The Reformed Reset. Um, They're not a part of The Great Reset. Not that I know anyway, but no, they certainly aren't. And uh, they have some really great content going on over there. We're looking forward to, we've got some really great interviews coming up as well. I just booked uh, Pastor Aaron Rock. Um, He's been wonderful throughout this pandemic on fighting back against you know, the heavy-handed totalitarian COVID restrictions. Uh, so I'm excited to hear from him about what pastors, what leaders in the church must do to ensure that their congregants can be uh, protected against you know, this totalitarian overreach and how they can best lead their flocks during this really tumultuous um, day and age. So I'm really excited to talk with him. So stay tuned. That'll be this coming Wednesday. Uh, and, and I hope you're all excited for that. But without further ado, let us get into the topic at hand. And that is picking up where we left off in Genesis 37. So Nick, we were introduced to Joseph and his brothers in a real intimate way last week we got to see that how he was favored by his father but maybe you can just set that in the broader context of what we've been walking through and then we'll pick up uh in verse 12 of the 37th chapter and hopefully we will work down through the end of the chapter yeah and just for context again what we had seen in previous uh, episodes, Scripture Saturday episodes, as we've worked through the entire book of Genesis, is this ongoing narrative of God's unfolding plan of redemption that we saw take place in, in its first light in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, is that God differentiated between two lines, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as we've gone through the entire book of Genesis thus far, we've seen that delineation between those two groups even coming down to the children of, of Jacob as well. And we saw that 
or sorry, even the children of Isaac in Jacob and Esau. And now specifically as we get into the descendants of Jacob, we're going to see how that spells out in a greater multitude of family being that of 12 sons that he has and how many of them so far have really shown themselves to be unworthy of receiving the blessing of God because they've acted in sinful, even in gross, immoral immoral ways. But also now we're seeing here, especially as we get into this part of chapter 37, we're going to see how being that favorite of his fathers, Joseph is, you know, outnumbered and he has got a target set upon him because in the dreams that God has given to him, he's been given this divine revelation that at some point in the future, he would be a great leader, which would then rule over his brothers in not just a kingly fashion, but also in a redeeming, saving fashion in providing for them when they're down and out and when there's a great need in their life. So it's it's a big story that we see here. God's bringing about this plan of redemption, and we see it coming to fruition. And another stroke going on that canvas, as we so mentioned throughout our study, another stroke being painted there of how God will ultimately bring redemption through his son. But right now we're getting into the story, chapter 37, verse 12 through the end, and let's see what happens to this great dreamer named Joseph. Absolutely. So let us pick up in verse 12. It reads as follows. Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Yeah, so in these first five verses we're looking at here, we see that Joseph's station before his father was so favored that he didn't have to go out and shepherd the flocks to pasture their father's flocks as the rest of the brothers, most likely the other 10, because Benjamin being even younger than Joseph was probably not at the age where this was possible for him to do. So we see at least there's probably a good chance that 10 of the brothers are out there are pasturing the father's flock. But what's interesting is where they are pasturing the flock. Because we know from the life of Jacob so far that when he was coming back to the promised land where God first visited him, when he left to go spend some time with his uncle Laban, we saw that he came back and settled in the land of Shechem. And things did not go well there for uh, Jacob's daughter, because she was raped and she was wanting to be purchased out by one of the Shechemites there. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that these brothers of Joseph go and take the father's flock back to Shechem, back to this place 
where there was good hatred for them because of that great atrocity of them killing the entire village of people, of men, because of the atrocity that took place in defiling Dinah. So what we're seeing here is very unwise actions by Jacob's sons. And as Israel has concern for them, because they go back to this place, he says, are you not, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send them to you, or I send you to them, sorry. And I think that's important because Jacob or Israel in this moment is wanting to find out They've gone back to where they it didn't go well before. Are they going to be doing well? Are they going to be actually carrying out the task that they're supposed to be doing, or are they going to be getting into more trouble? So he's wanting Joseph, who's already brought a good report, a, like a truthful report about his brothers and their ill treatment and ill uh, regard for how they're supposed to be managing his father's uh, flocks, he wants him to go and bring another truthful report back to make sure that they're actually tending to his flock well. And it's very reminiscent even of how Jacob, when he first gets to um, to the land where Laban and his uh, stewards are of their flock and how they were not treating or not tending to the flock well, and Jacob corrects them. Now he's wanting to make sure that as a good shepherd, that these people who are supposed to be good shepherds as well are doing their job as they are supposed to. And what we see is Joseph carrying out the will of his father once again. He's he's quick to say, here I am, I'm ready to do your will. Unfortunately, he doesn't you know where this is actually going to end up. And I think that's, you know, the kind of the cliffhanger we're getting into in the story. Yeah, exactly. And I like I'm just Joseph's character is really interesting here because we kind of pointed out a lot of people like set him up as kind of a tattletale in the first instant. But you actually see that this isn't him giving a report to his father seems to be the very thing that his father has set him up to do. Right. Um, He's obviously Mm -hmm. showing favor for him. He's his favorite son. He's the one son who's not out in the past or working, but he's almost got this managerial or ambassadorial uh, role to him that when um, Jacob wants to know how, how the flocks are being tended to, he sends out Joseph as his, um, his shepherd of the shepherds, (laughs) as it were, to give a report of how things are going. And as you've made mention, no doubt he's thinking that they're now in a land where um, they've already done a wicked thing. People hate them. They could be trying to kill the brothers and and take their sheep. Uh, you know, so he's he's wanting constant, diligent uh, reports. And it's really interesting to see that he is ready at the call when when Jacob asks asks him. He says, here I am. You know, that's that's really um, reminiscent of a prophet, right? He's he's here to accept the call um, of the authority and then go and do as he's told. And you can see that he's in lockstep with his father. He's ready to do his father's bidding, even if that means being sent into hostile territory. He cheerfully embraces the opportunity to show his love and obedience to the father 
and he goes to seek out his brothers. And he does that in love because you you see when he gets to the field where he thinks they are, when he's already done what the father has asked him, when he's already obedient to him, he still goes on further to seek out his brothers. And we have to keep in mind that they despised him. We'll see that coming up very clearly. Yet he loved those who hated him. And he did it yeah. in a very real way. And that's a duty that, though is difficult, it's one that we're called to do. So when somebody shows us great contempt, when somebody hates us, we do not return like for like. But instead, what the scriptures tell us to do, heap burning coals on their head. Why? By or How? By loving them. By yeah, loving them and, like we're commanded. Yeah, exactly. And this is is this is in a certain way a beautiful picture, beautiful gospel picture as well, because we saw in last week's podcast, verse four, that the brothers hated Joseph. And then in verse eight, they hated him even more because of his dreams. And then in verse eleven, the brothers are jealous of him. So we see that the one son is favored of the father, the rest are sinful, unjustly hating him their brother, and yet the son that is beloved of the father goes to show love and care because the father has care for the other sons, Mm -hmm. right? Just as God has a care for all of his creation, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Mm -hmm. He wants all to come to repentance, but he has specific... Yo, sorry, you were going there. <laughs> Yet yeah, he has a specific, yeah. uh, he has care, a specific care for his the son of his affection. Exactly, and that specific care and love for his beloved son flows through him to us who are his chosen and beloved as well. And as ambassadors for Christ, for the gospel, we go out into the world and we now proclaim the beautiful wonders of Christ and his redemptive work to perishing men who are at enmity with God, who hate the Son of God, but without any other way can be reconciled, need this message of reconciliation. Yeah. And, and, and there's a wonderful picture here of that very thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. And and let us seek diligently the lost as Joseph does, even if they hate us. Right. Even if we're we're going into hostile enemy territory, looking for people that don't want to be found, but we're doing it joyfully and obediently because that's the father's command. That's what we can learn from that. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to point out. Yeah, it really is. And, And even these brothers who are sinful and lost and full of hatred and jealousy, they even go further than they were supposed to be found. Right. And that's just another showing. It's kind of like Romans one sort of language when you look at it that, you know, God gives them over. Well, they go even further away from their father. And yet the son of the father's delight pursues them even to where they are found. And I love how that picture is brought out there as well. Mm -hmm. Sadly, though, his brother's hatred manifests itself towards Joseph in murderous rage and we see that in verses 18 
through 25 here. And it says, they saw him from afar, him being Joseph. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here, come this, or here... They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit or into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their man, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Yeah, and what uh, what a turn of events. Not, not surprising, though, because of how much these brothers hate Joseph. But again, there's... You have to remember the context here. Joseph is doing the will of his father here. He's carrying out what his father asked him to do. And these brothers, because they have such hatred for him, it's manifesting in a desire to murder him, to kill him in cold blood, because they have not as much favor as Joseph has. And what's interesting about it is that it's not that Joseph shows up on the scene. Hey, guys, how's it going? Oh, man, he's here now. It's they see him from afar off. They see him coming and they say, we got to kill him and get rid of him now. Not just because we hate him, but because we don't want him to rule over us. And I think there's something in this attitude and this statement here that has them understanding the truthfulness of those dreams and that there was going to be a fulfillment of them in the future. And this was going to come to pass. So when they conspire against to kill him, it's because here comes this dreamer, let's kill him and throw him into the pit and we'll see what comes of his dreams, right? We don't want him to rule over us. So we will kill him. We will get rid of him. And then we're, we can be our own masters. We can live our own way. We will not be held accountable by our younger brother who is more favored than us. We don't want that. We want to be our own kings, our own gods, as it were. And then we'll go to any length to complete this. And you can see, even in it, they're willing to not just to kill, but even to lie to their father about what is going to happen or what they're planning to do to their brother so we can see that in this as well this desire to kill him is going to breed more and more sin and that's what happens with sin over and over and over again a lie spoken at the first doesn't seem like much maybe but then you have to cover up that lie with another lie 
and then that lie with another lie, and it can become something greater and greater than that first instance. And that goes with any sin, a first slight look in the wrong direction, and now you have lust brewing in your heart, and now you'll conceal that and try and cover it up and justify your actions in such a way that, well, I mean, as long as I'm not touching, I'm not doing anything wrong, right? So you're going to continue to try to justify sin and try and find a way to excuse yourself from it because sin in its nature just breeds more and more sin. And Mm -hmm. we see that taking place in the hearts of these brothers and what they're wanting to do to their younger brother. Yeah, and think of what they're conceiving here. It's murder in the first degree, right? Murder with malice aforethought, right? This wasn't out of the heat of passion, but this was a design to murder their brother out of jealousy in cold blood, as you've made mention. That is wickedness. Um, I think it's really important to point out that the contrivance of sin is is worse than sin done in, you know, the heat of passion, as it were. Because this is, you know, sin upon sin, you know? And and it's, um, it's just really, really interesting to see how this jealousy, this hatred has become so toxic that it's reached the point of being murderous in um, the hearts of the brothers of Joseph. And it really reminds you of what you read in the first chapter of Proverbs, right? When it when it talks about um, sinners who are trying to entice you to join their company and they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. But the interesting part is... It's those that have this same contrivance of sin, who have this murderous disposition, who in vain, it goes on to say in verse 17, spread a net. And these men actually end up laying in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. So in this same way, any of those who would desire to murder their brother out of a jealous hatred it is ultimately they who will be going down into the pit it is also ultimately they who will be destroyed not just in body but in soul also Hmm. yeah it's a terrible fate for the wicked who continue down the path of the wicked question 82 is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of god answer No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. 
miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreyexchange.ca, and you will find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreyexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses. also interesting in this portion of this passage here as well is that when we first looked at the life of Reuben and his actions, he was doing, uh, he was having sex with his mother or his uh, stepmother, I should say, or however you want to word that. I don't know exactly how that works out. Uh, His, I guess it's his stepmother, sort of. His dad's concubine, yeah. Dad's concubine, whatever that turns out to be. I don't know. It's not good. But we saw that he had sinful actions. (laughs) (laughs) no no it's not a good thing and it's not advised and scripture goes and says you're not to do that so we see that in the first instance of reuben's life that he is doing uh sexual immorality he's unduly taking his father's wife and what he's what we see now in the life of reuben is a distinct change in his attitude and his actions though yet not Full to the full measure of what it could be. Because when Reuben hears of this plan, Reuben, again, being the oldest, the eldest of, of Jacob's sons, when he hears of, this end, he sa- hears of this plan, he says, well, let's not take his life, shed no blood, just throw him into this pit, uh, but don't kill him, don't hurt him. Because he has this idea that if I can get him thrown into a pit, maybe that'll just appease their anger and I can save him afterwards. What's really missing in Reuben's response, if he's truly seeking to uphold righteousness, is to stop them completely, not offer a compromised position, but to, to stand up and say, I will not let you hurt our flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And what you're desiring in your heart is wicked and sinful, and you must repent, and you must let our brother live. Right? You mm-hmm. must not lay a hand on him. That would have been real leadership. <laughs> yeah. So so we see that Reuben, he, there is a slight change in him, but again, it's not to the full measure of what true repentance or at least uh, a full repentance would be in his attitude because he's still trying to, I think in some measure, be that leader, but not lose those who might come after him and look to him for leadership as well. He still wants to maintain some sort of credibility with them. I'll let mm-hmm. you get a little bit on him, but I'm not going to let you take him out, right? Yeah. And, th- and that, again, is not just leading, because just leading would say, no, we have to uphold righteousness. And if you're not going to uphold righteousness, you're really not fit to be a leader. And I, d- and I think that's really telling here of Reuben as well, that he's already forfeited his right to be the leader of the family. And he's though he's made some corrections, it's not quite in step of what a true leader should be. Yeah, totally. And it's and it's interesting to note, too, that he would be the one that steps up here, because if you're thinking about who has the most to lose with Joseph being the favored son, well, it's it's Reuben. Reuben's actually the firstborn. He has a greater claim to that inheritance than any one of the brothers. But it seems as though he is 
um, has a softer, gentler disposition than um, Simeon or Levi, who seem to be kind of like brutal uh, warriors <laughs> and very hot-headed and hot-tempered. Um, so yes, I mean, it's interesting to see Reuben devise a plan to save his brother's life, right? When it says that he might come rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. He he was devising this plan, but the plan had a purpose that, okay, throw him in this pit. He was going to come back. He was going to save him. He was going to restore him. Maybe for his own selfish gain, too. You never know that he might win favor with his father by saving the son of his favor. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, yes, I mean, he should have been a true leader, a true firstborn and said, don't devise this wicked thing in your heart, brothers. Y- you know, y- the hatred will consume you. Mm-hmm. Don't, de- don't do this wicked thing. Yet he, out of the love of man, allows his brothers to contrive this plot. Um, so they go ahead with his plan. They say, Okay, let's strip Joseph of his robes and throw him into a pit. And they do it. Um, And so it's really interesting um, how that plays out. Yeah, it is. And I think there's significance in the wording of this as well and what they do. Because in stripping Joseph of this robe of many colors that his father gave him, they're really showing that you don't deserve or you don't deserve to wear this. We're going to strip you of this favor of your fa- of your of our fathers. Therefore, you don't deserve it. We're going to strip everything away from you. But what's really interesting is that it's not the robe of many colors that proved Jacob's faith or favor towards Joseph. It's because he favored him that he gave him the gift of the robe. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we have to remember is that it's not what we have that shows that we're favored. It's that we're favored that we have what we have. Yeah. And we can kind of lose sight of that at times as well, where we take the blessings or or the gifts that God has given us for more significance than the giver of them. And I think that's something that these brothers didn't really understand. And that's why they acted in this way as well, is that they were wanting to remove the gift but they really, without taking his life, they can't really get rid of the the relationship and that love that he would have for him. And it's just for that foolish, sinful thing. If we just take this away from him, that'll show him he's not really that loved by the Father because we're out here and now we got his coat. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I, it just you you can't help but see the Christ type in in the fact that he's stripped um, and he's he's laid bare um, and he's you know, molested by his brothers, um, in this way and, and how Christ was ultimately stripped and put on a cross, um, by his brothers who he sought to save. And there again, you see this wonderful, uh, gospel picture, another stroke added to the canvas. Um, so after throwing him in the pit, we, we move on and we see what happens to him. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit 
Is it, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Yeah, there's a lot in terms of those gospel pictures, those Christ-like <laughs> pictures here in this portion. Uh, you think about when they set, sat down to eat after they threw him into the pit once he's been stripped of his robe. Same sort of imagery that you get when Christ is stripped of his robes and he's nailed to the cross. And as he's hanging there dying, we see that there are those who are at the foot of the cross throwing dice, you know, throwing lots mm -hmm. to see which items of his that they would get. And just that careless attitude to what is really happening in front of them, that there's the, the grave death injustice. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's something that we see there. There's, 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 there's also this idea even of how even when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, how the people at the bottom of the mountain are there committing great acts of immorality, sitting down to, or sitting down to eat and rising up to play, right? So there's, again, this disconnect that's taking place in the lives of sinful men between what is truly happening in a means of God uh, bringing redemption, if, even if it's future redemption to his people. So we see that taking place but then there's this you know this picture again so reminiscent from what we get in the new testament of how some men seek to profit from the hurt and harm to christians to their fellow man and that's really brought up here in verse 25 to 28 in that these brothers seek selfish monetary gain for themselves at the expense of their own flesh and blood. And yeah. this is something we see explicitly presented in the life of Christ as Judas, who sought, you know, throughout the three years of ministry, once he was set apart to be the keeper, the treasurer, as it were, of the funds that were given to Christ in his ministry, for the, and he would take for himself and seeing an opportunity to great, gain greater wealth he again would betray his friend, one who cared for him would provide for him and would ultimately bring redemption and, and we see that this is the same sort of thing that's happening in this text as well is that these brothers see an opportunity well if we just kill him we get nothing for that mm -hmm. you know guilty conscience if they're even thinking that no they don't but, even have a guilty hey, maybe conscience maybe do something better than kill him yeah if they had a guilty conscience they wouldn't sit down and eat right you know if you had a guilty yeah. your your appetite would have been spoiled but the, but they sit down to have a feast and you know relax as the, as though they've done a job well done by throwing their brother into a cold pit with no water or anything to die yeah. you know yeah. um it, it does show like a, just a callous coldness towards Joseph. And then, I mean, the, the prospect of, of, of gaining a sum of money off of selling him into slavery seems too good to pass up, <laughs> which is, 
you know, thankfully what they do in God's providence that, you know, their hearts were set on murder, but in God's providence, he overruled them to serve his purpose. And ultimately, as we're going to see as the story unfolds, to make Joseph an interesting, er, like an instrument of saving lives that, um, again, Joseph is that type of Christ uh, he was the beloved son of his father and hated by a wicked world, yet the father sent him out of his bosom to visit us in great humiliation and love. He came to his earthly brothers to seek and save, yet their malicious plot to kill him. They, he gets sold for for silver, and yet we know that ultimately God does this for the purpose to save many and in if you think of the whole story in its context too like you even go back to joseph not being able to find you know his brothers at first and then having to go out and all of this is working within god's timing to lead to this moment where they're sitting down to feast having thrown their brother in a pit and they look up and they see the ishmaelites coming and they say to themselves hey, let's grab a buck or two by selling him into slavery. That way we're not guilty of killing him. But all this is coming to pass. All these free will, quote unquote, decisions, all these different actors, it's all playing out according to God's plan and purpose. And even against their really like designs, their actual intentions. If you think about it, the brother's designed to kill him then reuben comes in with his own design and he says no don't kill him throw him in the pit thinking okay once he's in the pit i'll save him out of the pit i'll give him back to the father i might find father or favor with the father and then judah comes then judah comes and he's like oh hey check out those guys they've got a bunch of stuff we can sell him into slavery, make a buck or two, go back home with some money, look good, and then we can devise our plan to make it look as though he's died. You know, so you have all these different decisions, all these different plans, all these different competing interests, but they're all playing out to bring about God's designed purpose. Yeah, and that's that's the case from Scripture over and over again even when you look at the life of Christ, right? What did the Pharisees and the religious leaders want more than anything to do with Christ, but to kill him? Mm -hmm. So they go to kill him, but in killing him, what happens? The greatest and the only act of redemption for men's souls that ever came place on this earth. What they wanted to do was to get rid of him so that he would not be king, so that he would not rule over them. And that's the very thing that enthroned him in the heavens for all time and would come back to judge the world in righteousness. Well, guess what? It's the same story playing out here, just as you make mention. God uses those wicked intentions of men to bring about a great salvation, which ultimately that's what the book of Genesis gets to at the very end, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And yeah. this is exactly what's taking place here in that these brothers are intending evil. They don't, they just don't want him to rule over him. But at every step, at every single movement of that they make, every move on the chessboard, it's actually getting them closer to that checkmate from their opponent. 
yeah. to show that it isn't you trying to win. It's you trying to win, but I already knew the outcome before this game even started. Mm-hmm. You lose. And yeah, it's gonna, no, actually going to be for your benefit. Yeah, totally. And I mean, when you think of the Jews' desires to deliver Jesus up to death, how many times does it say within the Gospels, well, they couldn't because his time had not come? Or if, even yeah. if you think of the people wanting to enshrine him as the king. Well, nope, his time had not come. That's not how his kingdom was supposed to come back. And I mean, Acts 4 is a perfect example of this convergence, right? The the believers praying after um, John and, and Peter are delivered from the hands of the religious rulers, um, they, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, speaking about God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. When when you're talking about all those groups, each and every one of those groups or people had their different reason for wanting to live, deliver Christ up to death. But as you made mention, the hatred and evil that they contrived in their heart was part of God's predetermined plan of deliverance. So yeah. there you go. That's God's sovereignty in salvation. That's um, compatibility. Both God's sovereignty and human will coexisting side by side but ultimately man's quote-unquote free will is um trounced by the true free will of god when all things come to pass according to his ordained purposes Uh, exactly and that's something we look at and as we made mention at the beginning of our study here today God in Genesis 3 has planned out the crushing of the serpent's head by the seed of the woman, right? We've seen that since Genesis 3. And at since then, the seed of the serpent has been trying to stop that from happening. But nothing will stop it from happening. Because mm-hmm. God is in control of every single moment of every single day in every single person's life. Since from the moment of their birth to the moment of that, he's timed their birth and their death, everything that would take place in their life, every decision they've made is ultimately because he has planned it to turn out that way. Such is the case in this part of the story as well. At every single point in time that the seed of the serpent tries to gain victory over the seed of the woman, that at every single instance, it's not going to happen because God has sovereignly planned out every single instance of every single story to bring about the redemption that he's promised would come to pass. God's word is true. Therefore, even in this instance where Joseph had these dreams, when all the brothers bring all they can to prevent it to happen, it's actually moving it closer and closer to bring it about so that they will be ruled by their own brother. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Now, interesting here in verse 29, um, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? So it's really interesting to note, the text didn't really tell you that Reuben wasn't there. 
But <laughs> clearly what happened, Ruben said, hey, don't lay your hands on him. Then he, I guess, went away, and then they devised this new plan, thanks to Judah, to sell him into slavery that was at odds with his plan to ultimately deliver him. Um, and he comes back, and he's surprised not to see Joseph in the pit. Where is he? Oh, he's down in Egypt. Um, but having sold him into slavery, what do we see? Well, we see these wicked brothers then fulfill the plan that they had set out at the first, and that is to show their father that Joseph had been slain, that he's gone, and also do it in a way that absolves them of the moral guilt and culpability so that they seek to have good standing in their father's sight while actually doing that which is evil. So we see in 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar and an, office, er, and an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Yeah, so as you make mention, and it is very interesting that, you know, Ruman says this is the plan, this is what we should do. And then he's gone. And I think this probably ties into the fact that they're shepherding sheep out in a wilderness, right? So you may at occasion be together with the other shepherds, but you always have to be tending to your flock to make sure that they're not going beyond where they should be going, not getting into harm's way, not venturing any near any cliffs or anything like that, or any ravines or waterways. So there's this care over the sheep. So we see the brothers still caring for their sheep, uh, the, his, their father's sheep and being shepherds in that way, pasturing the flocks. Um, so when Reuben comes back to see, because obviously they've moved on because they're still tending to the flocks, he sees him not there. Okay, well, there's now that sense of, well, I'm the oldest. I'm supposed to take responsibility still, even though I have kind of done some sinful actions in the past. Now my chance to be restored to my father by a righteous act is now foiled. That's not going to happen. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? There's mm -hmm. absolutely no way. I thought there was a way here. Maybe I could be reconciled with my father. Hey, they, hey, these other brothers, uh, these sons of yours tried to kill Joseph. But, you know, me being the upstanding eldest brother, I kept them from doing that. But now that whole plan is gone. So what you said is, well, now they got to try and cover it up. How can we say, well, Joseph isn't here, we can't just say, well, yeah, we sold him into slavery because we wanted to make a buck. We hated him so much. We, di we didn't care what you thought about him, Father, and your great love for him. Um, how do we cover this up? How do we justify, or not justify, but excuse our actions in such a way that we won't be 
found out. And this is what they hatched. They hatch a plan now because they have that robe of many colors, that sign of the father's blessing and love for Joseph. They have that sign there. But how now can they use that as a means to portray to the father, their father, that your beloved son is dead? He's gone. You're never going to see him again. And this is the plan that they come up with in killing a goat, putting blood, smearing blood all over this robe of favor, this covenant blessing robe, covering it with blood and then presenting it back to the father and saying, is this your son's? Just tell us, is this your son's robe or not? Not, is this Joseph's robe? Is this our brother's robe? Is this your son's robe? So even in stating this, you can still see that there's disdain and contempt for Joseph, even in how they're presenting this robe to, as a means of covering up their sin. Yeah, no, and I think, I think it's really important. Uh, Matthew Henry says this, When the devil has taught men to commit one sin, he then teaches them to conceal it with another theft and murder with lying and perjury. But he that covers his sin shall not prosper long. And don't we know that? The idea of the conscience being under the law of God is evident in us, right? That's our direct and immediate link to God, essentially, is that conscience inside of us that we're all endowed with. That we, we all have that little knowledge. It's not enough for salvation, but it's enough for condemnation. Romans 3 makes that very clear. Um, you know, it, it accuses us before the Father. And we know that. When we sin, you even think as little kids, when, when we lie or break something, immediately it's not like, oh, I've got to come clean and tell my parents. It's, oh, can I put it in the closet or can I clean this up really quick before anybody notices. Mm -hmm. Can I blame someone else for this sin? Can I lie about what happened? It's a natural thing in sinful man to do that. And it's a, th it's, it's something that we see at the first when we are introduced to original sin with Adam and Eve, they likewise hide from the father who knows all things and sees all things and they cover themselves up in fig leaves. They, they self-righteously try and cover up their own sins, but it never works because God sees and knows all. He knows the hearts of every man, woman, and child. Thus, we cannot conceal our sin from the Father, and ultimately, on the final day, in the final analysis, all will be laid bare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every secret sin of the that's secretly hidden within our own lives will be exposed on that day when God judges men by the by a righteous standard. E even as Numbers thirty-two says, you know, be sure your sin will find you out. I think that's a great text which we can import into the understanding of Genesis 37, and eventually as we look through the rest of the book as well, especially coming to the end of the book of Genesis, that will truly be the case, that these sinful actions 
that have taken place in this chapter will not be left unaccounted for, right? And that's the wonderful thing that we have as a hope and a promise in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that every single sin, whether they are brought to justice here on earth or not, will one day be dealt with. If you are found in Christ in this life, you know that every single sin of yours has been brought to light and paid for in full at the cross when Christ went to Calvary. Every single sin has been dealt with. There is none left hidden in darkness, which will one day God will expose by his magnificent light of righteousness, that he'll say, oh, we forgot about that one hidden in the deep recesses of your heart. No, every single sin has been brought into the light and been exposed and dealt with. But if you refuse to come to the light, if you refuse to come in repentance and faith to Christ and choose to remain in darkness as currently these brothers are, they're continuing to add sin to sin. Then on that day when God exposes all the deeds of your heart, you will have to bear the weight of that guilt yourself and be crushed for all eternity. Oh, and they add sin to sin because not only is the the wicked plan bad, but then the cover-up's worse. But then the deceit is cruel. They go to their father. They show him the robe of many colors, and he is broken. The son of his favor, the son of his great love, the firstborn from the woman that he loved has now been killed by ravaged beasts is what he's thinking. And the text says all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. His sons knew exactly what had happened. Yet they go on with this charade. They have seemingly no pangs of conscience for what they've done. And they clearly do not love their father because if they did, they wouldn't have rose up to kill the son or to pretend that they've killed the son of his affection to sell him into slavery, to, to go on this deceitful scheme. It is truly, truly despicable on every level. And, you're left feeling for for Jacob here who refuses to be comfort, comforted and he says these profound words, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I will mourn for the rest of the days of my life till I see him face to face is essentially what he's saying there. Thus his father wept for him and as we see so many times in this posture of mourning, it says he wore sackcloth and he, he, he poured ashes on himself as well. I mean, it's, it's really, really sad. Sorry. He didn't pour ashes. Sorry. He just tore his garment garments in sadness and, and put sackcloth on his loins. I just added the ashes in there. My bad. Um, but yeah, it's really, really sad to see. Yeah, it is. And, you know, if you're looking for a good, you know, picture of what a hypocrite is, 
<laughs> this is this is the chapter you can go to, right? You you have here those who claim to be by pure genealogy sons of the the man of the covenant, right? They're sons of Jacob renamed Israel. You know, to be a part of a great covenant of people, to be a blessing to the nations. And here you are as part of this family covenant name, now acting in the exact opposite way, doing things which ought not to be done if you are carrying that covenant name upon you. Well, I'm the son of Israel. But what did you do? Well, I pretended to kill my brother, sold him into slavery, lied to my father, and now... I'm trying to console him hypocritically because I know the reality of what has happened. Verse 32 says, we found this robe. Please tell us if it's your son's robe or not. Well, you know where you got it. You stripped it off of your brother's back before you threw him into a pit. How can you carry out that sort of charade for so long, acting so hypocritically, two-faced as it were, just to try and get out from bearing the weight of your own guilt or exposing yourself before men. But that's truly what it always is. When we sin so greatly, we are totally fearful of the consequences of it. What's going to happen if we say what I've done? If I say that I've done some sinful act? We're afraid of exposing ourselves because we're afraid of the consequences. That comes in our own relationships with one another, and also comes in our relationship to God as well. Yeah, We're afraid of confessing our sin because we're afraid of the consequences. And that shows itself really clearly, even in talking to some, some other brothers of mine, uh, Christian brothers, that is, in that why are we so afraid of admitting our faults and our sins before other brothers? Yeah, yeah, the opposite the opposite of this should be true of Christians. We should know that all things are laid bare before God. We should repent of our sins and look for accountability, look to be transparent, look to live a life where we're doing the very opposite, where we're repenting quickly of sin. We're we're turning to God for forgiveness in Christ. We're we're living a life that is not hypocritical um, in this sense. But you understand how this happens, right? We've all experienced this, um, the, this moment where you sin and then you add one sin onto another sin. You lie and then you, or you, you lie, cheat, steal, whatever. Then you lie about that. Then you, you know, and then it, it further compounds the weight. So then you further get entrenched into that, that original sin where you almost lose sight of where sinner is, you know, where you even really started because um, you compound sin against sin. And I think we also as Christians, we have to realize I get the maxim, you know, the, the razor maxim, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. But I really need people to understand the scripture speaks very clearly on people in their hearts conspiring to do evil. And this is a story that evinces just that, that wicked men 
planned in their heart to do an evil thing. Once they had done that evil thing, they devised in their hearts a way to cover it up. Once they had covered it up, they devised in their hearts a way to win favor with their father, to continue on the charade, to continue on the lie. And it's the very thing that we see in Psalm 2. That the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take care or take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's the same conspiracy that we saw in Proverbs as well, in Proverbs 1. (laughs) It's not a bad thing to understand that evil people have wicked intentions and they conspire to do evil. You need to believe that if you're Christians, and you need not to be so naive to think that people are so good they couldn't design evil schemes. The scriptures speak Mm -hmm. clearly on that. We need to be open-eyed and honest, not seeing them where they're not, but also not discounting that fact that really exposes um, the tyranny in our hearts that really exposes the depravity of fallen man. We can't shrink back from that. We have to embrace that. And it, and it comes out in schemes and in conspiracies like we've seen in this text. It's not a nice text to go through, but it's good to see those pictures of the gospel in it. And then knowing that end of the story of the fact that the evil, wicked intentions of those who plot against God are ultimately foiled by his good and righteous decree. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think we should take just before we close out the podcast here, because I know we've gone a little bit long, but one thing that we really have to pay attention to as well is how when God first made a covenant with Abraham, Abram at that point in time, he said that his people would be enslaved for 400 years, right? And that is coming to fulfillment and to fruition by the introduction of Joseph into the land of Egypt. So, though God's promise is to bring about a great deliverance, there is suffering that's going to take place before that deliverance comes. And this is something that we have a hard time swallowing, especially as Christians in the you know the Western world, because we've grown up in comfort and without, you know, the sort of external pressures, physical pressures from the world, which would deter us from following Christ. But we're starting to experience that a little bit more now. And what we need to understand, especially for our own day and age, is that this life, we are not promised comfort. We're promised, as Paul Tripp called it, uncomfortable grace. And God's going to use that uncomfortable grace to bring about a great fulfillment of his promise. And while Joseph here is being, he was sold by the, to the Ishmaelites, brought to the land of Egypt, and now he's in the service of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. There's going to be a time of great exaltation of the family of Israel. But it's not going to be a long-standing time when they will be in this favored position. And there's going to come a point in time soon after this, where they're going to enter great hardships 
But after a time of hardships, God still doesn't, and even during those hardships, God does not forget his promises and his word, his covenant oath to his people. And he promises deliverance. So even if we are going through suffering right now, and it's not even a matter of if, it is how much suffering are we having to endure at this moment as Christians, if we are truly being faithful. For there are those who are afraid of, you know, they're ashamed of Christ. They're afraid to open up their mouth to make known who Christ is and what he has done and how Christ has redeemed them. But for those who are unashamed of the gospel of Christ and who will expose themselves to the world, they will undergo hardships, but God promises a great deliverance. Either it's going to come at the end of his time that he's allotted for you here on earth, or it's going to be at the return of his, of his son. And that's the great deliverance we have to look forward to, that God has taken care of everything that we have to be afraid of. And even as I heard at one point in time, us Christians are invincible until God takes us out. Well, this is the same thing here. For Joseph, he can take heart that though he is sold into the land of slavery now, that he is a slave in the, a land that is not his own, and he is undergoing great hardships, God's word to him will come to pass. And as it's like Christ in the wilderness as well for those 40 days, he was called, or he was at his baptism, behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Right? Then he goes into a time of great suffering, but after that time of great suffering for 40 days in the wilderness, we see again how God restores him and angels, angels come and minister to him to strengthen him for the rest of his ministry up until the point of the cross, where he again endures suffering and then goes to the grave. As in the same sort of motif here, we see there's this sort of idea of death taking place. Is all hope lost once again? And it's not going to be for many, many years for Joseph to see his father once again and his father to see that sort of resurrection come about in the same sort of way that he can take heart that my son was lost and now he is found, right? He is alive. He has come back from the dead, as it were. And there he gets to experience and see that the word spoken to Joseph in a dream comes to pass and there's great fulfillment to God's word that even through heartache and hardship, God is good, and he has our best in mind, even if it means great suffering for a time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we will pick up with the story of Joseph and Potiphar when we look at chapter 39, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Um, but there will be a little bit of an abbreviation to that story with the account of Judah and Tamar, which we will, Lord willing, pick up next time on the program. Looking forward to that one. Yeah. No, I, you know, there's some really depressing stories and in amongst this little, <laughs> you know, this is a dark time in the life of, uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's house, but, um, Praise God that God's sovereignly in control of all these things. And though man is wicked and sinful, he is righteous and good, and he brings about his good purposes. So we can be thankful for that. Thank you so much for listening. We know we went a little long today, but we hope you enjoyed the program. We hope you took from the text what God had put there for you to see. We hope you can see that in the midst of all this chaos and tumult, 
that God's plans and purposes are sure to come to pass. That is what we can learn from it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to continue to go to the website, thegreatexchange.ca. Check out all we got going on there, including our new podcast, 21st Century Christian, hosted by Bryce Clausen, our man, our main man, our dude, our mensch. Uh, He's doing that over there. Uh, Check out some of the merch that we got over there as well. And you can check us out on any of the major podcast catchers. Be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review, and share that with people as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as we say at the end of every program, it is finished.